Drive into left center, and what a play made by the rookie Brian O'Grady. Pitch. Oh, into right field. Brian O'Grady, first big league home run. Fly ball, center field struck well. Marisnik going back at the wall. Gone! Welcome back, Brian O'Grady. All right, welcome inside episode 52 of Breaking Bats presented by Not For Long Media. My name is Justin Ayers, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, my good buddy. It is Ryan Ripken. Uh, Ryan, it's it's great to see you back here. We've been doing a lot of uh, stuff, you and I, here lately. We, we did uh, an interview that we have coming up here later with former Ray Richie Schaefer, which is so much fun. Um, but episode 52 is the CC Sabathia episode. And as an Orioles fan, I don't have fond memories of CC Sabathia. But I'm curious, what stands out to you when you think about good old CC? Well, Justin, uh, thanks for welcoming back. I'm glad we can continue our duo again. Just glad to be filling in for Brian. Uh, CC Sabathia. Well, uh, if you're an Orioles fan, you didn't really like him very often. But actually, my first, uh, you know, memories of CC was as an Indian. You know, it still doesn't you know stick with me that he was a Yankee. Obviously, he spent a lot of his career there. But that was my first memory. I actually remember, I believe the case was Sabathia throwing against the Red Sox in the playoffs. I think that's like kind of one of the lasting memories for me. And then I feel as soon as Sabathia came to New York, you could just feel his, you know, he, he embraced being a Yankee, brought that type of swagger to that group. And uh, he was a, uh, a big guy, big dude, um, and a guy I wouldn't want to tick off either. Uh, but uh, I, I enjoyed seeing him compete. Um, just not, not, uh, you know, tearing up the Orioles. Didn't he break Nick Marcakis's hand with a pitch? I think, you know what? I'm gonna have to go back and look at that. We might have to get the tape out on that, Justin, but you know, uh, there was definitely no, uh, no love lost with that for his time playing with the Yankees versus the Orioles, even though the rivalry wasn't obviously the same, there was a bitterness you know, during the, during those years with Yanks and Orioles, it's always a little bit more bitter with New York. Aha. September, September of 2012. That was before the playoffs. And I remember being just vehemently against CC in that, in that time period. Cause I'm like, you just, you broke the hand of our most productive hitter going into the playoffs. And then 2012 ALDS, uh, he just absolutely shoved it down our throats. So um, those Double are my CCs. Yeah. It wasn't great, but episode 52, it was going to be a CC Sabathia episode. Uh, a lot of great stuff this week. Uh, but before we get to all of that, this episode is brought to you by our friends over at Psalm Sleep. Uh, are you having trouble getting enough sleep at night? Because Psalm Sleep has you covered. Psalm Sleep has the scientific event, scientifically advanced Psalm Snack has ingredients that are naturally found in your body, like GABA, magnesium, and melatonin. Sleep is the best form of recovery, and it has helped people everywhere take their game to the next level. All you have to do is drink one serving just 30 minutes before bed, and your body will naturally calm itself down. Wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day with Psalm Sleep. Go to getsom.com, click shop, and enter the code BATS, B-A-T-S, at checkout for 10% off of your entire order. All right, in the news category this week, we have, uh, sticking with the Orioles theme, we have a former Oriole has finally found a two-year home. We are, of course, referring to Trey Mancini, two years, 14 mil with the Chicago Cubs, opt out after 2023 if he gets 350 plate appearances. Uh, kind of a surprising move for the Cubs, who had just went out and signed our other good buddy, Eric Hosmer. Um, what, what do you think about the fit with Trey in, in Chicago? Um, I'm, I'm just happy to, to see him, you know, one, get in, you know, a good-sized contract, and two, just, you know, on a team that's on the come-up. 
Yeah, yeah. First off, Trey is no matter where he went, even if Trey went to New York, I don't think anyone could have can have anything bad to say about him because that's just how much respect. And that's even that those are strong words for me saying going to the Yankees or another division rival. But that's just what Trey meant to, you know, the community in the region, the city of Baltimore. I am really happy he got a multi-year deal. You know, getting a two-year, $14 million deal, right? That was the parameters right now. And obviously, so it's great to see him, a lot of his hard work pay off into a uh, a multi-year contract. The fit is interesting, obviously, especially with Hosmer. But because of the way things have changed now in Major League Baseball, you know, Trey's value, you know, can rise a little bit because – he can be allowed to, because I mean, I feel like I'm about to blank here, but DH is staying, correct? Mm-hmm. And yeah. both sides. So I was just making sure. It's kind of having those those moments. I apologize. You know, I was told told just before. Just it's been a zoo of a day for me, and uh, so I'm glad. So I'm glad. I'm glad I'm getting my thoughts out right now of, you know, about all this. Anyway, back to what matters. Trey Mancini. I think with the DH now being the National League, it helps him because Hosmer being there, it just seems like that's going to be a platoon. But with the DH role, it's going to allow Trey the flexibility. And I think the cool thing is the Cubs have put together a roster of kind of the – I don't want to say they're cast-offs because they're not. They're not cast-offs at all, but they're guys on their team that have extreme potential that have, you know, underperformed recently. You know, if we're talking about Hosmer's kind of been on the downswing – uh, uh, Bellinger, right? Is yeah, so you're looking at that. And then Trey had a rough, um, rough uh, stat line after going to Houston, and especially in the playoffs, obviously, he's had some great years. But so you see this group of guys that has a lot of uh, has a lot of experience. So I'm excited for him on, on that, in that front. And um, I think the, the Cubs are going to be an interesting team to watch to see how this whole thing unfolds. Absolutely. Yeah. When I first saw the Chicago Cubs, you're right. I, th- I thought the same things you did where I'm like, well, you know, they do have the DH and he can, you know, Trey can play the corner outfield when needed, but you know, you don't, you don't necessarily want to play in 150 games in the corners, but um, the Cubs though, I mean, the Cubs have come a long way since their, their uh, 2022 where they had 74 wins. I mean, the list of guys they added is incredible this offseason. season. Very, very busy uh, for the Chicago Cubs, Dansby Swanson, Trey Bellinger, Jamison Tyon, Drew Smiley, Hosmer, Tucker Barnhart, and, and Brad Boxberger. These are all guys that the Cubs went out and acquired this offseason. Um, it's it's going to be a whole new look for for the Cubs in 2023. Do you think that they've made enough moves to, I don't want to say, because, you know, the NL, and especially with the third wild card, it's going to be hard to, to fight for that. I You know, Brian told me on this podcast, you know, he reminded me, because I was like, you know, the Cubs could maybe get that third wild card. I'm like, well, the Padres are good, like the Phillies, the NL, basically the entire NL East, except for the Nats and Marlins is good, but, um, what do you think about the Cubs' competitiveness level heading into 2023? Well, like I was saying, the, those other pieces, so I talked about guys where people are looking for that rebound. Then you talk about guys at the Cubs, you know, the big sign of Dansby Swanson, that is massive. That is a huge upgrade to their infield. And I don't think it's far-fetched to think that they can't fight for a wild-card position, but you do look at the National League, and to start the season, would you pencil them in as being a wild-card team right now? I'd say no. However – you saw how the Cubs kind of were finishing last year. They had a very disappointing season, you know, overall, but they did finish strong. And now you have this group of guys coming in that can make some noise. Now I'm not expecting them to win the division, but it's really going to be just like any team. How can you start out of the gate? And if the Cubs can get off to a decent enough start to stay in the race and let some of their guys get hot, you know, the Cubs could, could hang around and, and find their way uh, into the postseason again. 
they just have a fun lineup too. Like Nico Horner, very underrated. Like mm-hmm. Dansby Swanson, Ian Happ, who was an all-star. Seiya Suzuki, who's come on, who's been a very, very good signing internationally for them. Hosmer, Mancini, Bellinger, Morrell, Tucker Barnhart. Like that's not a bad one through nine. So I, I think, you know, 74, I think we could probably get 500. Why not? Yeah, I, I don't see why not. Again, I'm not penciling. If you were to tell me today the Chicago Cubs would be my pick to be in the playoffs, I'd say no. But I'd be so naive to say that with those guys, if some of those players can show their potential that they had a couple of years ago and the Cubs get hot, could be a fun year in the Windy City. Absolutely. Uh, so we do have uh, a feel-good story of the week, and this is brought to you by uh, the official sponsor of Not For Long Media and the Breaking Bats podcast, the original Fudge Kitchen. It is a staple of the Jersey Shore. They have six locations, Cape May, Wildwood, North Wildwood, Stone Harbor, and Ocean City. They make all their fudge in store. Uh, guaranteed a delicious product. Their Instagram is incredible, at the original Fudge Kitchen on Instagram. Uh, let them know Not For Long Media sent you if you go visit them in person, or you can check them out online at fudgekitchenswithans.com. Uh, so as a, you know, as a pseudo pirates fan, I, I have, I have a bunch of teams that I follow, but the pirates are one of them. So when I saw Andrew McCutcheon was coming back to the pirates on a one-year $5 million deal, it made my heart feel good. It made me feel good as a, as a pirates fan, as a baseball fan, seeing, you know, the cornerstone of their franchise for nine years, you know, he, he hadn't been there since 2018, but to come back after all these years and, and who knows th- there could be more for Andrew McCutcheon, but uh, to go back to the place where it all started, how how good did that make you feel? Not as a Pirates fan, but just as a baseball fan. Cutch, you know, he, that, that's where the, the, again, those are the memories started, and you know, and I could tell Justin, you're 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 a baseball romantic, even for being for being a young guy. I mean, you're a younger guy than I am, and it's so cool to see how how much you appreciate guys and and where they where they came from to start their careers. And I, I felt the same way. I mean, those are the memories that you saw and he brought kind of that energy to the pirates at a time where, you know, when the pirates were, you know, playing good baseball and that was fun. And he brought that excitement, that energy, that, that feeling that, that fans love to watch and to see it kind of come full circle. And even seeing some of these great players, you know, whether now it's slowing down or, you know, coming towards the end, go back to some of their, you know, where they started former teams. I look at Albert Pujols, you know, last year coming back, you know, it's it's different. We're not expecting the Pirates to do well uh, on, on like what the Cardinals team ha- has aspirations for. But cut back to the Pirates is a is a great feel good story, and and I hope that Pirates fans uh, can really appreciate seeing one of their favorite players return home. Absolutely, and you're right. I am a baseball romantic. I I, I love you know, the storylines. I love the personal aspect of Major League Baseball. It's 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 the greatest. It's the greatest thing ever. So. Uh, but for McCutcheon, it's cool though. Cause I read this great article talking about how, you know, after they traded him back in 2018, he still kept tabs on his former club. I think he might've named his son steel after the steel city. Um, he's, you know, at, he might not have played for the pirates for a while, but you know, you can always feel he was a pirate at heart and him and the owner, Bob Nutting, they would always like text back and forth. And, and it was actually the owner, Bob Nutting, who went to, to the general manager, Ben Charrington was like, Hey, Andrew McCutcheon, let's bring him back. There really wasn't any resistance to bringing him back. Although you, you you can make the argument against the Pirates bringing him back, just in the sense that like he could delay some of these outfield prospects that they have getting playing time. But the flip side of that is, is like it's Andrew McCutcheon, like the locker room presence, the ticket sales, which probably are going to go through the roof now, um, and just you know all the all the intangibles that he brings. Like I feel like that's worth it in and of itself. Oh yeah, it's a leadership quality too, you know, and and he's he's all the things that he's accomplished. When you can bring someone back that has been a you know, he went through a span of five straight seasons of being an all-star. Five straight seasons of being an all-star and being the guy who 
really, you know, some of these guys and the Pirates are, you know, some of these young players throughout the league probably looked up to him. And now you can see him on a day-to-day basis and he can provide that that leadership. And I think also the really cool part, and I think this is another part to think of, you know, McCutcheon came up, I was looking it up. He was 22 when he when he debuted with the Pirates. And so when you're that young, I mean, he spent up until he was 31 years old, you know, with he spent 10 years with the team. And so that was such a, you know, he probably, that's why he, you know, feels so close with the city. You know, we forget sometimes, even though when you look at athletes, you're going through different phases of your life. And and McCutcheon spent a a huge portion of a, of a a monster uh, time of his life that uh, monsters, the wrong, the wrong word, but he spent such a, a, important part of his life and he was growing as not only as a person but a man as a teammate as a player so um i just i love it i love it i hope the best for him and i hope uh it can bring uh a little bit of jolt and and maybe hurry the process up for for the pirates rebuild all right and last but not least before we get to our interview with richie schaefer for this week we have instead of a top five we're we're doing taking a look at some of the free agents that are that are still available that we're surprised about that that should we think should already have found a home that we think are deserving of finding a new home for 2023. Uh, I have four of them. That's not to say there's not more, but uh, we're start with Jerickson Profar on Brian's Padres. This guy, this guy's durable. Like he, first of all, he played 152 games last year. He could play a multitude of positions, all the outfield spots. I know they had mostly in left last year in San Diego. Uh, you know, came up as an infielder there for so long. 3.1 WAR. It's not too shabby for somebody that's still available in the free agent market. Um, you know, I, I look at, I look at teams that like are looking for outfield help and I'm just like, how, how does Jerks and Profar not, not have a job? That's, you would think that's, you would think that would be an easy one, but, um, you know, thoughts on Profar. Well, that's the thing too. And he had 15 bombs last year, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that versatility, we talked about it so much in the past, how much value that will be. I mean, he's going to sign with the team and I think, when you looked at some of the other guys that were, were falling into place in the bigger names, it was kind of the construction and now teams are trying to figure out how their lineups stack up. And that might, honestly, it's probably going to be closer to spring training would be my guess, but definitely versatility is going to be key. And if you can prove that you can play multiple positions and be counted on to play a duration of a full season, which he has sure he might have to adapt to a new role. It's possible, you know, to being a not an everyday guy, but he definitely can go out there and impact the team, you know, in the 2023 season. Absolutely. And the other guy, again, we're, we're sticking with the theme of former Orioles here is Dylan Bundy. One of my favorite pitchers to watch uh, when he was on the Orioles. Um, yeah, this is a guy who doesn't walk anybody, you know, 93rd percentile for walk percentage in last year, uh, 29 starts. Like this guy is young. He's going into his age 30 season. Like, you know, the number is eight and eight with a four, eight, nine might not jump off the page, but like, if you're looking for, a reliable fourth, fifth starter, like you could do a lot worse than signing Dylan Bundy to your team. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. It's I mean, he gave you twenty in the last two years, he's given you 52 uh games, you know, 48 starts. And you know, whether that's gonna be a team that that wants a that they think that's a contending team or a team that wants to eat innings, however you want to look at it, I think that a team is gonna find value with him. But again, it's he's had an up and down last few years. There's there's no um, getting around that, but a team eventually is because to have a guy that can go out and give you some innings and, and help out your ball club, it can it can give you um, it can give you a ton of options. And I mean, the Orioles have been a prime example. If you've been watching in the last couple of years, they've signed guys like Matt Harvey, who 
they were hoping to eat up innings and then may maybe end up being a trade piece if things worked out. Obviously, it didn't work out for Harvey, but Bundy has that same upside of if he doesn't go to a contending team and the team signs him and he and he plays well, you know, that team could flip him, you know, at the trade deadline for someone of value moving forward. And in 2020, uh was ninth in Cy Young voting. That's 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 like yeah, six and three with a three two nine in twenty twenty for the LA Angels. That's it's pretty good. Again, he just holds a place in my heart because he's a former Oriole. <laughs> and always, we know we talked about this earlier. You you are just such a romantic, and, and I love that you that you you have a loyalty to your guys. Did you play with Dylan Bundy at all? I did not, but I remember Bundy coming out of high school because I believe I was going to look at this. I think he was maybe the year above me, or or uh, it was twenty eleven. Yep, so he's the year above me. But I remember hearing all these things about him, just as far as his talent and. Um, you know, and I, I think it was some of his workouts I saw at the time. I was like, man, this guy is going to be a stud. Injuries derailed him as far as what, what made him so special with his velocity. But, you know, still being able to overcome those and be able to to, to have a – I know I know people to look at the numbers and can go, well, that's not being dominant or successful. You're, you've been in the big leagues since 2016 consistently. You know, it's hard to sustain up there, and, and he's been sustaining which is, which is great to see. Absolutely. Uh, the next pitcher, again, I don't know how this guy hasn't signed with a team. You talk about all the, the people that need like good starting pitching, like Michael Waka. Yeah. Like, win, wins and losses. Like you could love wins and losses. You could hate them, but 11 and two is 11 and two. So, I mean, that's in a three, three, two ERA to, to boot there on the Red Sox. there pitching in the AL East. So uh, I, I, I've heard the Orioles are interested in Michael Waka. I hope that comes to fruition, but to have somebody that's, Again, I come from the the thinking that like wins and losses aren't like the end all be all, but they can paint a pretty good picture. Yeah, you know, I think well, it looks nice. I'll tell you what, it makes you feel even better. It makes you feel more confident when you have more wins and losses. And in this case, when it's such a there's such a discrepancy between the wins and losses. But the bigger thing for me is the ERA. You know, the, the ERA being what it was and being at, at a three three two ERA shows you that i mean that's that's really solid and what we talk about usually as a as a team when if you're starting pitchers every outing what your goal is to if you can go six innings and allow three or less that's your goal and obviously that's not going to happen all the time but that's what you strive to go out and do and for waka's era for the entire season to be right at that threshold that's what you want and i think a lot of teams i'm surprised he hasn't been signed i really am and maybe it's just trying to wait, wait things out. But Waka can be a guy that can definitely help solidify, bring leadership and, and can be an arm that can, can really make a difference for a team um, that, and could be one of the sneakier best signings, depending on, you know, how the year shapes up. I mean, like, like the Orioles and, and Jordan Lyles, like that's, that was a name that like a lot of people didn't think would be, you know, leading their staff in most like statistical pitching categories. But like, who's to say that like Waka can't be a guy like that that goes to a team and, and just like, you know, has uh quietly under the radar again, just like great. And this is a former all-star like in St. Louis. I remember when he was coming up, he was like the best pitcher. Like he's a great pitching prospect, a great pitcher at the time. It was just like, yeah, this, this is a guy I want. This is a guy I want on the Orioles. So I want to keep, I want to keep that on there. Um, free yeah, first round pick in the 2012 draft out of a of uh, a and M. So, um, yeah, Michael Walker definitely needs to find a team. The last one, uh, stop me if you've heard this one before, but he was an Oriole. 
Uh, it's Zach Britton, still a free agent. I, I know the injuries have kind of derailed him the last couple of years. He, he had to have a reconstruction of, of his ligament. He had to have a Tommy John procedure. Like he pitched a little bit in September, then they had to put him back on the shelf for, uh, talking about when he's on the Yankees. But um, yeah, and this is a guy, hopefully the velocity comes back. Hopefully the arm gets stronger, but if it does, like this is, I mean, he's for like a five-year stretch. He was like one of the best relief pitchers in baseball. I mean, he was one of the most dominant. He was one of the most dominant relievers over that stretch. And again, when you're looking at what he brought to the Orioles during that run, you know, that, that five-year run that we have talked about again, he was the guy, you know, 15 and 16 specifically being that guy, all-star he had 47 saves in 16. Now look, he's not the same. He moved to a different role when he went to New York and you have different arms. So that changes. And now fighting through injuries and now being 35 years old, it's a lot different. But I think the encouraging part is that if his arm can be healthy, you know, if he can keep that deception and maybe he loses a little bit of velo, you know, cause it's a guy that could be, be close and touching more close to a hundred, but he doesn't have to be that, but his stuff naturally has so much sink and so much movement down if he can keep that and get his arm, arm healthy, you know, we were just talking about it off the air. I mean, a little reunion, maybe to, with Buck Showalter, if it's if there's a confidence. I mean, Zach Britton, a guy, if he's if he's fully healthy, can definitely make an impact in the bullpen. Right, yeah. The, the days of him being the best closer in baseball are probably over. But, I mean, like, it wasn't that long ago. Like, 2020 wasn't that long ago. He had a 1.89 ERA for the New York Yankees. So, this is, yeah, I, I really hope he goes back to them or he goes back with Buck Showalter uh, on the Mets now. But um, again, you know, for the storylines, but yeah, I loved, I had, again, so many fond memories. That 2016 season, no, nobody could hit him. That Nobody could hit him. If, if he told them what pitch he was about to throw, they couldn't hit it. It was so well, much fun. Well, that's the thing of like, a, of a great player, great pitcher, you know, and I looked at it and again, this is why Mariano Rivera goes down as being the greatest closer is because you knew what he was going to throw. You knew he was going to throw a cutter. You know, Zach Britton was like, you knew what his pitch was. It was going to be that sinker that he had so much movement on that you were going to have so much trouble with. And that was a pitch, even if you knew it was coming, hitters really struggled to get to. So it's a testament to him and seeing how pitchers, longevity of pitchers, it can go either way. Hopefully if Zach can get things cleaned up and, and can be healthy, he can be an asset for a team. I, I know We're talking about these four guys and I'm saying the same thing, but it's true veterans and being around the game you never really know what they can bring to you during the season if they can be some of that uh of what a shell of themselves it's going to be it's going to make a, a difference down especially as uh the 2023 2023 season carries on it's oh, the best uh all right so we have our interview for this week it's with former first round pick by the tampa bay rays it is richie schaefer this is an interview that ryan and i taped last night uh it's a great conversation Ryan, when you think back to your conversation with Richie, is there anything that stands out or just like how much fun was it getting to pick the brain of somebody who, you know, like I said, first round draft pick, his MLB career, you know, he's a lot shorter than he would have wanted it to be. But uh, the work that he's doing now and the content he's creating, is it's it's so much fun to see. Well, I think outside of the whole baseball uh, component of of what he's done with his career, but I think we we always neglect – the men mental side of, of ourselves. And it's not just in baseball, it's in life. And here in Richie's journey of, and of the, the failures of what he regrets and how he is now helping future players and just 
people in general. That was a really part of the conversation that I love that I think a lot of people listening to it is, are really going to enjoy some of the the uh, conversations. I think I, I enjoyed all of them. I'm saying some to be to be nice. I think everyone can learn a lot from from Richie Schaefer. So hope you enjoy it and you should definitely check out his stuff on on his social media. Absolutely. His TikTok is crushing it. Like that's Killing. how I found him. Yeah. I mean, it's like this guy pulls in half a million views on the regular. It feels like it's, it's so much fun to see. Um, but before we get to Richie, we have two last quick words. We want to give a shout out to friend of the podcast, our sponsor, Actions Over Words. It's an apparel brand with the mission of encouraging people to use their actions instead of their words. It's a great company. They donate five bucks from every sale to different charities around the world. So visit them at actionsoverwordsapparel.com and use N4L promo code for 10% off of your entire order. And last but not least, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Not For Long Media family of podcasts. Uh, tons of great content. The Colin Thompson show is firing on all cylinders. Other great shows include Two Girls, One League, and then Odd G's with Harry May- Harry. Um, Harry Mays and Jason Martinez. I will switch them around. I'm sure those guys will get a kick out of it. Uh, But that all being said, here is the man himself, Richie Schaefer. All right, so joining us this week on Breaking Bats, we have Richie Schaefer. He is a a former first-round pick by the Tampa in 2012. Uh, Killing in the content game now, following all his social media. His TikTok is insane. So, uh, Richie, it's so glad to have you on here. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot. So uh, we have a lot of cool stuff. I, I went back and I did my research and I read all this fun stuff about you. Um, I wanted to take it back, though, to the draft because a first-round pick, I mean, everybody who plays the game, you know, collegiately or high school, they they, wanted, they dream about being that first-round draft pick. Uh, and you were in 2012 by the race. Mm-hmm. Just, like, how special was that for you? And, like, how good did it feel after all the work you put in to, you know, have your name called in the first round? Yeah, I mean, it was awesome. It, it, the crazy part about it is I look back – like 10 years ago when that happened 11 years ago now. And I was such a different person mentally then that like, I don't think I fully appreciated how like sweet it was at the time. Like I was just a cocky little turd. And I'm like, obviously I drafted the first round. I'm the best. Like, why not? I'm going to play for 20 years and be the greatest player ever. So like in the moment, I don't think I appreciated like how cool it was. And I look back on it now. I'm like, I, that was amazing. I can't believe that actually happened. Right. But like all throughout high school. So in the high school draft, um, I got a call prior to the draft because it was 09. The CBA was different and the rules were a lot different or whatever. And so I got a call prior to the draft saying like, Hey, if we take you at pick 13 with the X amount of dollars, like, would you go? And I said, no. And so then basically they're like, okay. And then they, everyone moved on and I got kind of priced out. I priced myself out of the draft. So at the time I went to college having turned down like a lot of money, like life-changing money for an 18 year old kid. And so I look at it now and like 31, I'm like, oh my gosh, like how did I not feel this crazy pressure in that moment? Because I would, I feel, I'd feel a crazy pressure right now if I did that. But like when you're young and dumb and naive, you're just like, yeah, it's all going to work out. Why not? You know, like, so that I think that that part of being young and naive was, is a, a huge benefit to that. And then, um, there was a level of like delusional arrogance I had too, which like really did not set in until, uh, I got humbled much later in my career. I, I read something that like you said that if, you know, if you would have went to pro ball directly at a high school that you said you weren't, you weren't ready for a variety of reasons. Um, and then, you know, it was a much better situation for you just like, you know, personally and maybe like physically and mentally just like mm-hmm. going into college, just like take me back to that period. And can, can you kind of talk to me a little bit more about like why you feel like, you know, high school wouldn't have been the best thing for you if you would have signed, I think it was like 25th round. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that can actually a perfect segue. So yeah, I ended up getting, technically drafted in the 25th round, but had I would have went, it would have gone to Cincinnati, I think in the first round. Um, and I just, I'm a big believer that like, if your gut is telling you something, you got to listen. And my gut was just like, 
I'm not ready for this. And for someone who was like as delusionally confident as I was to have even that sliver of doubt to me was like a big red flag. It's like, not only was the baseball intimidating, but the lifestyle was intimidating. And I was one of these kids that grew up. Like I was the baseball, like 24 seven kid. You know what I mean? I was like the eight year old taking batting practice like at midnight with like my hands bleeding. Right. Like I was that kind of kid. And so, um, like, I just didn't feel like I was prepared to like be a full blown adult in the real world and handle all of my, you know, real life issues. Um, and so I was like, I, and plus I really did want to go to college. That was something that was really important to me. Um, and I had a really strong commitment to Clemson. I was all in really bought in at the time. Clemson was crushing it in college baseball. They're about to be on the come up. They just hired a cool new coach. Um, and so I was like really looking forward to that. And I just think, I was intimidated by not just the baseball, but everything that came with it. And I personally think I made a really good decision. I think pro ball would have chewed me up and spit me out at high school. I really would have, I would have lasted two years, three years. It's that's interesting and fascinating. Cause I, you know, similar situation where I had an opportunity to go out of high school, not to the status of you where you had an idea of how much you know money you were going to make being that young of a kid. But I think we see so much in this industry, so many guys, where it's exciting, it's enticing, especially if you're the the all American. You're you got all these great schools looking at you, and you're hearing about how great you are at 17 and 18 years old. But you're right; people don't know how to handle that going in, and that element then kind of leading into it. You know, when you got to pro ball and you saw some of the younger kids, uh, I felt the same way, but I'm sure you did as well of there's a maturity level of trying to understand how to be a professional mm -hmm. and that, and that takes time also with finding yourself. And it sounds like for you, it's safe to say you went to Clemson to find out more about who Richie Schaefer was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point. The other piece to it too, is like when I got to pro ball, I realized that I, to your point of learning how to be a professional, I actually, I struggled with it even as I played for a long time of like the individualistic mindset of pro ball of like, this is just about your numbers, man. Like in the minor leagues, it's just about getting your hits, you know, driving and runs, hitting homers, doing whatever. Like it doesn't matter at all if the team wins, like not at all. And so I really struggled with that because I was yeah. a big like rah, rah, captain of the team. Like we're going to go win the game. I don't care if I go for four with four punchies kind of guy. And like when I transitioned from college into pro ball with that, like that took me a really long time to to figure that out for instance and, and really just like how do i do this in a way that like keeps that competitiveness because i know i'm going to need it if i eventually get to the big leagues but also how do i do it in a way that's like you bro this is your job this is your career you got to go like be a pro um and i think it would have just it just would have amplified and made everything worse if i came out of high school because i wouldn't have had those three years to kind of develop and mature um just from like a total uh, maturity standpoint to understand that like you know, these guys, you know, like, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter if, you know, we're on a 10 game winning streak. If you're over 25, bro, like you're not that's not a good thing. You know, like you got to You got to perform uh, to move up. That's really all it is. Yeah. Well, and and uh, I, I look back at that because that's a thing that that's the, that's probably the most drastic thing from college to professional baseball is the difference in mindset of. When you go to college, what's the what, if you go to a big program, Clemson, you know, obviously on the uprise, but I mean, I spent a little time in South Carolina, all the other big programs, they want to develop players, but at the end of the day, they got to win. Yeah. Winning matters first and foremost. You got to go out there and perform as a team. Everything else is secondary. It doesn't matter how it gets done. I mean, you're playing in pro ball and you're playing 140 games. 
and you're sitting there and going, it's, you know, maybe you've already played 90 games and your team is not playing for anything. And even if you make the playoffs, doesn't matter in the big, in the, in the grand scheme of things. No, but it's always, did you always find it easier than when you're in college? I know you said you had your struggles, but I always felt it was easier to play on a team when your mindset was focused on winning first, because 100%. I feel like if you focus on trying to win the game, you're naturally going to play better. But if you're in August yeah, and you're playing and your team's 20 some games out of first, and you're just trying to make it day by day, it's a completely different mindset going to the plate each and every day or each and every at bat. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, to me that like desire to win is what I think like, elevated my game. And without that, it was hard for me to find that, like just self motor to be like, all right, we got to just, you know, focus on our bats and make our adjustments or do whatever. Like the, the, the result of the game is secondary. But to me, like that was what I was such a competitor in terms of like my desire to win in high school and in college. I really think that that like, to me, when, when the game was on the line, like second and third and two outs in the bottom of the ninth or whatever, that the, the result of that game being a W is what like, to me dialed me in even more and resulted in me like performing better. Where in the big leagues, like that's just another at bat. It's just another chance for like RBIs and just that level of focus. Um, it just, it just, diminished by a little bit i even made a post about this on social media talking about like how the that uh, like the individualistic mentality can really chip away at some of your your desire to win and your focus and like i don't know i look back on i'm not sure how i would have handled it differently but like if you could find a way to keep that level of like desire to win and focus your game around actually still caring about winning um i think it can serve you well but like you just it, it just seems nearly impossible in the minor leagues to do that because it just no one cares because everyone's caring about their own career and, and moving along. You know, I mean, frankly, most guys don't even want to make the playoffs in the minor leagues. They're like, oh no, we got to do this for another two weeks. Like, a bunch of at bats that don't even count towards our stats. Like, you got to be kidding me. Football season's on. Like, let's go. Yeah. Said to the sentiment's the same. For yeah. Sure. That's fascinating. I never thought about that, but yeah, you're right. The minor, the minors in like a high level college program. You're right. Cause like, you know, the, the college coaches are obviously trying to keep their jobs and minor league players. It's just like a whole, it's, that's really cool to hear you guys break it down like that. Um, I wanted to jump ahead though, to talk about just like the Rays organization in general, mm-hmm. when, when they drafted you, did, did you like the fit with Tampa? Was, was that a team you had your eye on before they, the, you know, later half of the first round there? Um, it really wasn't. I didn't hear anything from them prior to getting drafted, which was crazy. Um, because I think every, everything, every player says this because every player has a level of sort of delusion about them. But like my agent and I were pretty convinced that I was going to go probably 10 to 12 picks higher than that somewhere, like right at the bottom of the top 10, so 10 to 14, somewhere in that range. And when I slid past that and I kind of kept going, I'm freaking out at home. I've got like, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 people there watching the draft, all excited to hear my name. And I'm like, you know, getting texts my agent, like, hey, maybe this team, maybe this team, it never happens. And I'm like, oh my God, like, am I not going to get drafted? It's going to be so embarrassing. There's all these people here, <laughs> like, whatever. Um, and so it just, I found out when everyone else did, like live on TV, I didn't get a call ahead of time or whatever. I just, I heard him call my name. I was like, oh, damn, no way. Um, and so in the beginning, I was a little apprehensive because I'm like, all right, I'm a third baseman. They got Evan Longoria, who's like at the time, and still is like one of the best in the league, gold glover, perennial all-star. I'm like, uh, <laughs> where exactly do I fit into that equation? Um, because in my again, in my head, I'm 21, I'm delusional. I'm like, I'm gonna be in the big leagues in a year or two. You know what I mean? Like, I'll I'll just I'll just beat through the minor leagues, whatever, you know, like just 
just the most naive mindset about it. And so I'm like, okay, how do I fit into that? I'm not sure, whatever, but, um, it ended up being great. I love the raise. I love the organization. Um, you know, it was, I got to play third throughout all the minor leagues. So I got to at least to develop a little bit through there. And then once I got to the big leagues, move over to first, but, um, yeah, at the time, it's interesting, though. The Rays weren't quite the Rays they are now then. There was still a ton of experimentation going on, um, and they did a lot of guinea pig stuff with us, which, I mean, for better or worse, is what it is. You kind of don't have much say in the matter as a minor league guy. Um, I think they have found their brand now, and they are very, very good at developing players and getting them like getting the maximum amount of ability out of guys. Um, I think a lot of that came, uh, for lack of better terms, like at the expense of, of me and some some you know, guys that are my age in that range of maybe 2008, like maybe the Tim Beckham year to like 2015, 16, there was like a, a, a stack of guys there where they were still trying to kind of figure out like, Hey, how do we be Moneyball but different? Right. Like how do we figure this out? Uh, they clearly have, but there were some, some interesting years for sure in there, but I, I love those guys. Yeah. So, you know, because we talk about the race, like the race for me watching is the team that if you want to, if, a, if an organization is not going to spend money, who you want to emulate around right now is the Rays mm-hmm. because they're playing in, in arguably, for me, the ALE's toughest division in baseball still mm-hmm. for right now. And they are not only having success, but at a, at a high rate. I mean, over the last 12 years, they have, the, I think, the fourth most wins in the American League or not in the American League, in Major League Baseball, period. But to your point, and that's a frustration part where you're trying to figure out yourself. You want to make it to the next level. And I mean, you can touch on stuff if you want to, but what do you think was the the switch for the Rays that went from this is how we're getting the most out of guys? I mean, you, you touched on it. You don't have to give any examples if you don't have mm-hmm. to or if you don't want to. But I'm curious because you're right. You, you saw a switch with, you know, I, I played against the Rays last year or two years ago in, or in uh, Durham and AAA. And it felt like whoever was down there, when they got their chance to get called up, especially pitchers, every single one of their pitchers, regardless, was prepared for whatever assignment that they went up to. They didn't seem unprepared at all. Can you elaborate or touch on any of that? Yeah, so I think they've been very good from a pitching perspective for the last decade plus. I think pitching development was never their issue. I think what they struggled with a little bit during my era was uh, position player development. Um, There was a stretch for a good while between Longo and... I don't know, like I said, maybe 2015, 16, where they were like, they didn't have a first round guy get more than like 200 at bats in the big leagues of any of their guys. Right. And so when you look at that, you start to say like, okay, there's a lot of talented dudes that came through there. Like what's happening, you know, to that these people aren't clicking. I think Chad Matola was a phenomenal hire by them. I think he is the man. Ozzie Timmons is another great hire. Um, And I think those guys came on the back end of my career and some of the guys. So I think those two dudes in particular um, who now are on staff with the race are, are phenomenal hitting guys. And I think helped a ton of um, not just the players, but sort of the direction of that as well. Um, they also had some turnover too. Andrew Friedman left and went to the Dodgers and then Heim came in and he was trying to figure out kind of what his direction was as a GM and a leader um, of, from like a vision perspective. So I think there was some, you know, all right, there was some leftover Friedman stuff. Like I was a Friedman guy. So I was like sort of a, like a residual Andrew Friedman piece. Like, what do I do with him? I, I'm trying to set up my own, you know, 
team of my own pieces, my own players. So there is a lot of that kind of uh, juggling around. Um, and I think Neander now who's in there and been there for a little bit, I think he's doing a good job with of, of you know, putting people in the right places and making decisions with that. But from a p- pitching perspective, they've always been, they've always been nasty with that. I mean, they just, they do such a great job. Um, I think they're like analytic department is incredible. I think they've sort of spearheaded some of this movement of like the advanced pitching stuff. I mean, they're just to your point, all the Durham guys, like I, the people that don't understand like minor league baseball truly they think like they think like triple a is is a this big jump down the durham bulls pitching staff for the tampa bay Rays every year could probably just plug and play with any bullpen in the big leagues like they are right. always nasty they've got just like a stable of horses every single year down there it is unbelievable who they have it's crazy and, and i think that was kind of the point of it and, and justin and i we've talked about it all the time or i've told him about you know, you look at that and you go, I, I just don't get it. And I guess maybe Justin now uh, us following the Orioles. The Orioles now are in a transition period where they went from one front office to the other. And so to your point, and this is well, this is a more personal question. You talked about you were a, a guy in a different regime. And you know it's a business. At the time, though, did you felt like that? And again, it's all part of the business as you in, in, in hindsight, 2020. But in the moment, did you feel any type of resentment? Did you feel a bitterness of that? Or did you understand that this is kind of how it goes? Of of Friedman leaving or when I eventually got traded? I think when when Friedman left. When Friedman left, there. no, because it's like at the time, I didn't even really understand the business of baseball all that well. And I think probably you can touch on this a little bit, but I don't know about you, but when I was in the minor leagues, the big leagues didn't even feel like the same sport. It felt very unattainable. Like most of the guys, like if you're in double a and you faced a dude who had like one pitch in the big leagues, you're like, eyes were like huge. Like, Oh my gosh, like there's no way. Like to me, it just felt very, it felt so far away. It felt very disconnected uh, from the big leagues when you're in the minor leagues. Um, at least that's just how I felt. And uh, maybe that was a raise organization thing. Um, Cause they didn't at the time, they didn't call many guys up from, you know, a ball or double a or whatever. It was a very methodical through the system. And um, so I didn't have any resentment to that because I didn't, uh, it didn't seem like it was something that mattered to me at the time. I I can only say these things in in hindsight, looking back on my career that like, okay, like this is probably what happened in the moment. I'm just like, whatever, I'm just going to go ball out and do my thing, whatever. And I even ended up having a really good year. That was 2015, maybe I think when 2014 off seasons, 2015 was my, but the, the year that Heim, I think was his first year. And that was my best year. So I was, that's the year that I crushed it and finally made it to the big leagues and do all that stuff. So I didn't think much of it at the time, but I look back on it now and be like, okay, like why did it feel like my leash was so short? And that is probably what inevitably what a piece of it at least. Yeah. You mentioned high and bloom and in one of my favorite videos that you made on, on your TikTok and Instagram was just like a story <laughs> about playing the outfield for the first time. And I'd love yeah. for you to kind of expand on that because I was watching, I was like, I just find it hard to believe that, you know, corner infielder, they, you know, at no point before that they had never tested you out in the outfield with, you know, power hitting right-handed hitter. Like, that, that never was a thing before Tampa? No. Um, I mean, I, I played third base all throughout the minor leagues. Um, and then in high school, beyond that, I was like a shortstop pitcher. You know what I mean? I pitched a ton in high school to the point where I thought about going to pro ball as a pitcher. So I was like shortstop, third base pitcher, never played the outfield, not like Little League or whatever. I mean, I was like coach's son growing up in Little League, so I was playing shortstop, right? I mean, just that was who I was, right? It just you can't you can't knock, you know, what your past is or whatever, but I never played outfield. And so, um, I mean, I didn't I didn't power shag. I didn't do any of that stuff because I was very 
I really, I really wanted to be a good third baseman. I, I mean, I like Ryan, we talked about this before. My favorite player growing up was Cal. So like I wanted to be like a third baseman. That's what I always like dreamed up wanting, like grew up wanting to be that dude, like that staple of a franchise third baseman. And uh, so I was, I was very much like, no, I'm not doing anything else. I want to play third, whatever. And so then eventually when they're like, all right, bro, you're not going to get to the biggest at third. You need to go play some first. Eventually I was like, okay, that's fine. I can do that. But um, if it's going to give me the big leagues, sure. But uh, I, I kind of resisted a lot of that. Um, and <laughs> yeah, that, that story where like I'm in Texas and um, Grady Sizemore was starting in right. And I went and pinched hit for him when they brought in Jake Diekman. That was a fun at bat. That was an easy strikeout for him. And then uh, <laughs> I, was, I probably just would have, like they probably just would have put another dude out there in the outfield, but they were kind of scrambling around and Cash looks at me. He's like, Shafee, you're played outfield without missing a step. I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> I've never played outfield. And then he's like, all right, you're going to right. I'm like, heck yeah. And so I lean over to my buddy, Mikey Matsuk. I was like, bro, like, can, you, can I get your glove? He's like, yeah, sure. So I, <laughs> I use Mikey's glove and I run out to right. And I'm looking out there. I'm like, oh shit, I don't know what I'm doing. So I looked at KK and I'm like, Hey man, like I'm gonna stand right here. You just get whatever you like. Just call everything. Call, I don't want to catch a ball. You just literally call everything. And uh, this was at the old Texas Stadium, and so they had the old scoreboard like way like straight up. So I'm looking like straight up as if I'm looking up a skyscraper. To try. It was just that was my probably my first like welcome to the big leagues moment because I was just a fish out of water out there. And when you're in the outfield, the stadium looks so massive. I don't know what I'm doing. Prince Fielder hits like a ten thousand foot fly ball to me. I somehow like infielder catch it with two hands is just but i did it you know what it's fine <laughs> we're good and then i end up playing outfield uh, all of 2017 and 18 and uh yeah so it was, uh, it was a funny story well yeah that's you know i, I love hearing that because i feel like a lot of guys it, it's i was the same way as far well, being a lefty there's only so much i could do it was you know it, it, you would never aspire to be a first baseman if you could play other positions you could play outfielder for me it was either play first play outfielder pitch versatility in this game mm -hmm. you know something is that something though when the mindset if you're telling younger players and, and people in general because you've seen it firsthand yes if you're a stud they're going to keep you at one position mm -hmm. right if you're yep. if you're gonna if you're gonna bang and you're gonna hit some balls and you're gonna do your thing they'll let you play wherever but if not the versatility part is gonna get you in the lineup yeah so what would you say then to guys that are kind of were in a similar situation that your mindset was the resistance yeah so this is what i would say to that i say that there's two sides of it i think there's one side where it's like being kind of bad at a bunch of positions doesn't do you a whole lot of good right i think there's i think there's now where there's this push for versatility for a ton of guys that like they can't they're not they don't have the ability to be versatile right they are this position or they are that position and they just you end up getting a below average defender at a bunch of spots um so if, if you can pull off like one of my good buddies mike freeman who played for a bunch of years with a bunch of different teams he's like an awesome utility guy he was a very rock solid defender at like a ton of positions all the infield positions center field he could run he could do it all so like that to me from a versatility standpoint incredibly valuable me versatility it really wasn't that because like i was a to me i thought i was a above average defender at third base i thought i was a very good de like defensive first baseman but i mean does that really that doesn't bring a ton of value and then i was a probably below average outfielder so to me like the versatility for me didn't do a whole lot and so i knew like if i was going to be a really 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 valuable player i had to be the best i could possibly be at third base because if i could bang and play like above average third 
then I'll, I'll play the rest of my life, you know? But if I am just like, okay, at a bunch of spots, even if I hit well, you're going to end up with that tag of like, all right, well, where, where do we put them? You know? And that's like, to me, that's like the kiss of death that the, where do we put them guy is a kiss of death because like you have to, you have to hit at like MVP caliber level to be a, where do we put them kind of guy? You got to be Kyle Schwarber to like, where the heck do we put them? Right. You can't be Richie Schaefer. Like you have to be your offense has to be like, absolutely be elite level to be aware do we put them. Was that frustrating though? From uh, the other thing you talked about in that video was just like the, the raised mentality and the mindset was just like, you have to be, you know, if you're right-handed hitter, you have to be only again there against lefties. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, being a reverse splits guy, was that like just frustrating knowing that like my playing time is being affected by something out of my control and that like, you know, can you touch on like the playing time aspect yeah. and how hard it was back then? Yeah, it was really tough. You know I mean? And that was, um, I, I was never, I haven't used to that. I've never, I never came off the bench, never pinched hit or anything. So that was a big switch of like going to not only making the jump from the minor leagues to the big leagues, but then also going to the big leagues and then coming off the bench. And then when you're coming off the bench, you're not just coming off the bench. You're coming off the bench in like high pressure, late leverage situations against the best lefties in the world. Right. So it's like, okay, maybe you think righties hit lefties better, but righties don't hit that lefty better. No one hits that lefty, right? Like no one hits Andrew Miller. No one hits Zach Britton. No one hits Araldus Chapman. Like that's not, those aren't like good reverse splits or those aren't good like splits. Like they're just the best pitchers in the world. Um, and so that's kind of what I was talking about a little bit with like the guinea pick stuff that they were doing. There was a lot of experimentation that they were doing. Um, they've really calmed down with that. Um, in terms of the mid game, like full hockey chain, like line changes. I mean, we'd have times where like, you know, they'd start a righty. So we'd have the lefty starting lineup in, and then they'd bring in um, a, a lefty and we would do like, it, it really felt like an entire lineup shift with the exception of Longo and KK, where you bring in like a whole new team to come in uh, to face this lefty. And you're just, you know, when you're getting one or two at bats, it's really difficult to try to build that level of consistency and that level of groove. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely frustrating. And, and I don't think there's any player out there who's going to be like, yeah, it was okay only getting a few at bats here or there. I think most guys really want um, that consistent playing time to come to the field every single day, knowing where you're playing, knowing where in the lineup you're going to play or going to hit and uh, have that uh, that consistency to, to lean on every day. Um, so, sure, was, yeah, I mean, it was definitely, uh, um, you know, something that was frustrating out of your control, but, you know, that is part of being a young player in the big leagues and part of being um, someone who is not, um, you know, there's, there's some guys that are say, like kind of hand of the keys of the castle. I'm like, all right, you can go ahead and go fail, go like become a big leaguer. And there's other guys where it's like, Hey, we're going to give you some opportunities and like, let's see if you can do it. Right. There's a big difference between some of that. You know? Ryan, did you want to jump in off yeah. that? Well, it, it's so, I think that's a lot of things that people, when they talk about pressure and stress and what goes on and people, and I get it when you're fan, when you're a fan of the game and you get mad and you see guys having numbers. And we talked about in the past, Justin with Ryan Flaherty and Flaherty coming off as being a utility guy and his numbers are going, look, he hit 220 or whatever, or, or his numbers were in low, maybe it was below the Mendoza line. And to what Richie's kind of touching on, not being an everyday player or coming in in situations where you're not going to be successful. We're creatures of habit where consistency in the lineup, knowing what you're doing is going to give you more better production because if you have a bad day, okay, you know you're in the lineup the next day, all right, you can jump to it. But once you're in those situations where you don't know if you're going to be in the next day, you don't know when you're going to get put in the game, it can become so 
stressful can become so anxiety ridden mm-hmm. where you're sitting there and the next moment you come in, you go, I don't want to mess up this next moment. I don't want to screw up. Sure. And then that's a whole other thing that changes where your mindset's first going of, well, shit, I got to go out there and actually execute. And now you're having other d- doubts about, well, how do I do that when I don't feel good? So yep. I guess to lead to that point, Richie, we talked <laughs> about it, it was stressful, but then what did you have to tell yourself? to in those moments like it's yeah, yeah it's it's tough what did you what did you specifically tell yourself well i did a i did a terrible job of it if i'm being completely honest and it's a reason why i didn't stick i mean i did a horrible job and so not to segue into like some of the stuff that i'm doing right now but i look back on my career and i and i realized that that was my absolute downfall was the mental side about like i didn't handle those situations well i did all i, I fell into all the trappings of what you just described i mean He's like, okay, I'm getting a pinch hit. This might be my only at bat for four days. Like, I got to get a hit right here. Well, that that's like the worst mindset ever, right? You can't get a hit with that type of pressure and that type of mentality, right? Like, it's so. Um, I, I did a really poor job of of handling that stress and just handling understanding what my role was and defining what success was going to be for me. Um, and I think I had a, a very perverted, very skewed like perception of of how I was going to try to establish myself as a big league player. And that inevitably is the reason why I didn't, because I, I just didn't handle those scenarios correctly. Um, and it's a bummer, right? I mean, cause you work hard, you want to do all those things and I can look back on it with a clear head now and realize that was the thing. But in the time, to- in the moment, you're just, you're scrambling. I'm 24 years old. I'm trying to figure out like, you know, uh, how I, how I break through. And I'm, I'm like right here at the, at the doorstep of like everything I could ever want in my life. And, you know, not getting all the opportunities I want, but getting some, right? Like you didn't get no opportunities. You had opportunities. If you can just get a clutch hit right here, if you can just hit Homer right here, and you just do something like just this one thing, right? Like that, that level of just that extra bit of pressure um, is enough to really break down your approach and just get you out of everything that made you successful and got you there in the first place. That's fascinating. I, we So on this podcast, we've had the, the current Rays mental skills coach, Justin Sua on here, mm-hmm. and he talked all about the things that you were mentioning. Did anything like that exist when you were on the Rays or did they invest in that side of the game at all? Yeah, we had, we had mental skills coaches and everything. Um, and I, I worked with them uh, a few times here and there. Um, the reason that I kind of became so dedicated to it afterwards is because I did work with them and they're phenomenal human beings and I I love them. They were great and they truly wanted to help and they had some methods I think could help. But I think there was a piece missing that was like directly related and directly um, uh, applicable to baseball that was missing, right? So there's like, it's not just about the the skills to handle like general stress it's like, okay, even if you do calm yourself down in the moment when you're in the batter's box, like, all right, so what exactly is our approach going to be after that? So there was this level of like hitting coach plus mental coach combination that I kind of wanted to fill where it's like, all right, there's a lot of stuff mentally that you need to do before you're in the box to put yourself in the right mindset to be an elite hitter. And the, the mental skills guys can help you with that. But then once you do get in the box, there's a lot of the hitting coach stuff that needs to be in there that you know, some of the mental skills guys just didn't have because they didn't play baseball. So it's like really difficult to kind of talk about, you know, the different types of pitches to expect and the different, you know, leverage situations and the different counts. And, you know, how are we tracking the ball? What are we looking at? How are we, you know, reframing some of our negative thoughts, all these types of things that like hitting coaches have to deal with. Um, How do we kind of combine those two to make something that are applicable and actually give players tangible methods to, 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 have your mental skill set be a tool in the box and not just um, some like auxiliary piece to your game. 
how does that all relate to the work you're doing now? You, you touched on, you know, the, the six tool athlete, I think is mm-hmm. what it's called. Um, yeah. How does that like, you know, pl- based off of your experiences and your playing career, how are you able to shape that into what you're doing now? Yeah. So I, it comes from a lot of that retrospective look on my career and the things that I messed up on. Um, and then also working with a lot of these mental skill guys. So there's a lot of the stuff that, um, I talk about in the, in that training that are from mental skills coaches. And that's like directly taken from, so there's a lot of great methods that come from that. My piece was just adding on the, the baseball experience and the knowledge to that. So, um, what I looked at, it was like, I want to take what we do in the cage, right? We have a routine in the cage every day. Say you're your guy that like, you know, you take 20 balls off the tee, then you do your front toss, then you do your short overhead, then you do a machine, then you do curve balls or whatever. And that's your day. Like, how do we take that and build that from a mental perspective? And how do we actually create a system to have a consistent mind? Because that to me, the best players in the world are just consistent mentally. They're not like the best in the world, the worst one. They're just consistent every single day. They're the same dude. Um, and they get a little up and they get a little down, but they're right here all the time. I was like, I'm the greatest player of all time, or I'm the worst player of all time. There was like no in between for me. Is it like, I'm clearly going to the hall of fame or it's like, I don't deserve to be on the baseball field. I'm the worst player ever. It's like, how do we get rid of these pits and valleys? How do we find consistency? And then how do we like wrap into approach to all of that um, in a way that's going to give us an advantage over, uh, you know, not only the pitcher, but you know, other hitters that we're competing against. Ryan, did you want to jump in off that? You know, it's interesting. The, the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys, the mental battle with yourself. Mm-hmm. I was the same way. I mean, I grew up with the pressures of one. I got so frustrated as a kid being compared to my dad, my dad. Sure. Of course I can imagine. I got so frustrated with how that was all going to be and how, to handle the issues, right? So I understand uh, that completely. And then as a player, I felt every time, and baseball is already hard enough, right? How many, you know, I, we fail 70% of the time. And I say this all the time, you, what profession do you fail 70% of the time? And you are the best possibly in the world at what you do or one of the right, best. Right. Like when you think about that, like holy shirts and pants, like that, like blew my mind, but it, but I couldn't understand that because in the moment you think that you need to be successful. Like you need to go up there and need to get a hit every time or you got to have a good at bat and, or you at least have to feel good when you do it. And there's so many of those that you don't, you know, and I was the same way. And when you get so, and then I just remember in my, the, it's that other voice in your head, you know, and you can be your worst enemy. I was, I was my worst enemy each day. It's you, you play into the thoughts. So for yourself, and, and this is the hindsight, cause I'm doing it with, with, it myself what if you could go back and tell yourself at you know when these things became at the peak for you where it (laughs) were overwhelming what would be maybe one piece or two pieces of advice said it like what would be those words that you would tell yourself a younger you yeah so i think the number one thing i would tell myself and one thing i tell a lot of guys is just zoom out right zoom out i think as baseball players we get we get so, so focused on the short-term results, right? We think we're in a slump and we're 0 for 8 or something, 0 for 10. Is that really a slump or is that just a recency bias, right? Like zoom out. What are you for your last 20? What are you for your last 30? Like zoom out until you are good again and then realize that this is just a blip uh, in the radar. And like you're going to get – so if, say if you do 100 at-bats and you're – you know, uh, 28 for a hundred, you're hitting 280, you're doing pretty well. But if you're over your last 10, you're going to feel terrible. If you're hitting 280, you're feeling good. It's just a matter of like flipping your perspective and flipping the script and changing, reframing some of those thoughts, because 
you're in the middle of the season, you're going to go get another hundred at bats, right? So why does this 10, why are, why are these 10 at bats more important than the next 100? They're not. It just, this is the only thing we can remember. We have this short-term memory um, and we, it, it's this double-edged sword because we need short-term memory to forget about all the strikeouts and all the bad stuff we have. But that short-term memory also stops us from thinking about our, our season and our career from a holistic perspective and being like, dude, we are good players. You know, we just didn't get a hit in these 10 at bats at like, Fast forward from a week from now and we're five for 10. Like, are we all of a sudden a different player than we were today? No, absolutely not. It's just, it's the recency bias of what we're talking about. So zoom out is one of the huge concepts that I talk about a lot. It's like, how do we find a way to, to not put so much emphasis on the current at bats and think about more emphasis of like this longevity and this like long-term perspective of our bats. I think that really helps um, settle you and reframe you because I was a big guy of like, if I didn't get a hit in like 10 at bats, I was like changing my stance. (laughs) If I didn't get a hit in 10 at bats, I'm like choking up on the bat. I'm like moving a little bit. I'm like stepping back. Like I was like doing some weird stuff and I'm like, just relax, man. Give yourself some time because this guy at bat 11 is going to throw you a cookie. You're going to hit it out of the yard. Now you're one for your last one and you're going to go on a tear, right? So like just zoom out. So that's number one. Number two would be um, this concept I call like reframing. So basically... Anytime that you have um, uh, an initial reaction to something, you can't control that initial reaction, uh, but you can control the the framing of that reaction. So if you swing a miss and you hit a sky ball to the infield and you're like, oh, like how did I miss that? You can't control that. It's like a gut reaction. Those are not things that you can control. But when, as you're rounding first, you do have the ability now that you're conscious of it to like flip that around and be like, dude, I just missed that. I just missed like. Same exact words, different inflection, different meaning. To me, though, like that is huge because even if you're lying to yourself a little bit, that constant reinforcement of the same words with a different meaning to them, all they do is they build what I call this like this foundation of small wins to where you're going to build your your building blocks of of good confidence on. So like all your small wins are like, ooh, do I just miss that? Or like I was a great take, oh two, or whatever it may be. You frame it in a way that is like. A win for you, even if you got out. So that now when you hit that double in the gap, you have something to build it on top of versus what most of us do is we just dig ourselves this giant hole. And then when we have a big win, we try to get back to neutral, right? We have nothing that we're like, that creates this foundation that stops us from going down. And then we can build on top of. So to me, that reframing and building of these small wins is one of the keys to maintaining consistent confidence. So I can relate, especially to that one, the, the zooming out, it's, it's interesting you how you worded that. Because that I, I I've thought about that in, in some capacity, but not to that extent. When you open, expand your mind, and you change your perspective, things are always going to look better. It's like the more glass glass half full mm-hmm. method. The the reframing thing. I remember the best that I ever felt was when I started journaling mm-hmm. my bats, journaling everything that happened, and even if I didn't have a good day, there would be something positive out of each each at bat that I would write. Yep. And even on the day when I went, if I'd go over four with four punches, which is, we know you want to just the moment you feel like for me, I, the inner Harbor is in Baltimore. So I always mm-hmm. say to Justin, I'm going to jump into the Harbor. Makes yeah. me want to jump into the Harbor. Right. Right. But right. then I even wrote down on my piece of paper for that day. It just wrote tomorrow's a new day. You tomorrow's the day where the, where, where you, uh, you figure it out Yeah. or tomorrow it comes back. And so that's just really cool to hear because I think that's the hardest thing. People have such an expectation of what you want to accomplish and you're so hard on yourself that you put so much pressure that you don't 
celebrate the little things that you do because the reality is not just like everything in life. We're not perfect. And in baseball, it's the, that's the sport where you really are never going to be close to perfect ever. Yep. yep. So I, I love, I loved you bringing that up. Just wanted to, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, yeah, no, that I think amazing. that's great. I mean, I'm a huge, huge believer in journaling too, right? I think that is awesome to the point where um, in the six tool athlete, I have like a PDF that I've attached to it because I'm trying to build out the full scale version of it, but it is considerably more difficult than I anticipated it being. But this concept called the slugger journal, and it's exactly mm -hmm. that it's basically like a guided journal for hitters. Um, so you're not just staring at a blank page and don't know what to do. And it basically like breaks down it's like you give yourself a grade of like, okay, how was my mental game today? Here are like the five stages of my mental game today, pre-game, uh, pre-at-bat, mid-at-bat, post-at-bat, post-game. How was I during all of those? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? Whatever. Did I stick with my approach? Did my approach work? Yes or no? What were my small wins? All that kind of stuff, right? And it gives you just like this guided version of your ability to get all of your wins out of you, put them on paper, put them in stone so you can remember them and consistently uh, refresh them and kind of get that level of consistency and the confidence back in you. And then even uh, what I do is I put a little trash can icon in the corner and I say, basically you just like scribble through that. And that's you just throwing away all the BS. We don't care about it, right? Like you can't do anything about it. You struck out horribly, whatever you throw it away, you move on to the next day. We keep all this good stuff up here. Um, so I'm a big fan of the journaling process. That's something I wish I would have done more of in my career, but I, I did it um, at the back end when I got, you know, older and wiser, um, but not, uh, not in my, not in my youth. Yeah. Doesn't it suck that way, Justin? Don't, don't you wish you had all the answers when we were younger, right? Well, yeah, you're still no. young, Justin. So you're, 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 you're still screwed for a little bit, but. I had everything. You, I had everything figured out at 18. Yeah, that's that's kind of how everyone is. Clearly, yeah, right. Don't we all? <laughs> um. So, I mean, we we've talked about like the the content and stuff you're making around six tool athlete and, and everything you're you're doing right now on social media is so cool. How did you get kind of started on that journey of, of content and what are you kind of up yeah. to these days? Besides that. <laughs> Yeah. So the content journey has been super fun and it's been something that I've been pretty passionate about for a while. Um, when COVID hit, so I retired in 19 and then 2020 was obviously the COVID year. Um, so I was stuck at home, wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was finishing my degree at Clemson. I'm like, what the heck do I do? So I started streaming on Twitch, video game streaming. And this is why I have all this and the cool camera and the mic and everything. It was all from my streaming days. I streamed under the name Dickie Danger and I was uh, a streaming what legend. It was great. It was a great name. Uh, and I loved it. And I built a pretty cool following. It was awesome. I actually really, really enjoyed it. I think I could have built it into something cool if I would have stuck with it. Um, it just wasn't what I wanted to pursue full time. But I was learning how to build content for that. So then when I looked at the baseball landscape, and I have a very entrepreneurial business type of mind, I'm always trying to figure out like, okay, like what is, what is this next challenge going to be now that baseball is done? I have to pour myself into something. Um, I, I work a day job, but like, okay, what's going to be mine? Like, what's going to be something that I tackle? And so I looked around, I'm like, all right, I don't, what are my skill sets? I have a master's degree in baseball, right? That's what we tell ourselves when we are in professional baseball or whatever type of way I look at it. Like I have a PhD in baseball. How do I utilize this in a way that's different and differentiate myself, differentiates myself from other people? I don't want to talk about hitting mechanics because frankly, Hitting mechanic. I don't know if you're familiar with hitting mechanic social media, but it's the most toxic place on the internet. It's horrible. Like, don't ever go there if you ever wanted to stay away from it. It's horrible. Um, don't go there. So I'm like, I definitely am not going to be talking about the swing or hitting mechanics there. I just don't have the mental brain power to handle those people. They're just crazy. Um, so just don't go there. So I'm like, okay, how do we still help hitters? What am I going to do? I'm like, well, my career is basically ended because I couldn't figure out how to like 
make my mind an asset for me. Let's talk about that. So I dug in and did so much research and learning, and that's kind of where it came from. Um, and then I also, just from the business side, I also knew that like building an audience was first and foremost, the most important thing to any endeavor you're going to do. I model a lot after like Mr. Beast and some of these guys that like they build audiences around one thing. And then once you do that, you can do whatever you want. So my thing is like, all right, let's build an audience. Who are the people that are going to listen to me right now? And it's baseball fans and baseball players. So let's get all of them. Let's do really fun, cool stuff that like makes baseball fun. Number one, makes them want to follow me because the other baseball content out there is, you know, just the same old, same old. Like, how do we how do we differentiate a little bit? And then once you do that, all right, now, once we have an audience of people that trust you and you've shown that you care about them and want to deliver them cool stuff, now what do we do with it, right? So that's the stage I'm at right now where I've got some cool stuff in the works that I'm hoping to try to deploy here. Um, I don't know if I'm going to pull it off. It's pretty ambitious and kind of scares the crap out of me, but that to me is a good thing, right? So... Yeah, I mean, I mean Ryan, is, that's, you know, the transition from baseball to media is something you, know, you could probably touch on that too. Well, yeah, I'm even I'm a little bit further behind you on doing that, but the same concept, you know, what can you provide to someone that can be resourceful? And in some cases, it can just be an outlet. Some cases, it can be that you can give great perspective. Um, so it's awesome to see what you're doing and, and what you're focusing on. Because I will say this, and I think this isn't even like baseball related. I think we can all agree. <laughs> Life, whatever you do, it's gonna you're gonna be, you find yourself stressed out. You're gonna find yourself doubting yourself. You're gonna have yourself consistently figuring out what works for you and the mind for most people it's it's i don't want to say it's it's not valued as much to others and i think that's something as the quicker you can figure that out the better off you're going to be sure and um and it's not that you're ever going to master that either but i think so much we get caught up in what physically we can do better especially in athletics that you physically you go work out you physically get your reps in. You do everything you're supposed to do. And then you ignore the side that, you know, that you're because mentally, can you prepare yourself for a hundred for a full season? Can you prepare yourself to fail so much? Can you be yep. okay with failing? Can you be okay with being embarrassed? Right. And so I, I love what you're doing. It's awesome. Yeah. And uh, it's going to, for you, I know it's going to continue just to grow and skyrocket. I appreciate it. Dude. Yeah. I say this all the time. I say your ceiling is your mental ceiling. It just truly is like wherever your mental ceiling is as a baseball player, that is your ceiling. So if you're, if your physical skills are way up here and your mental your ceiling is here, that's where your ceiling is. If your physical skills are way down here, your mental ceilings here, your ceiling's still here, right? Like your mental ceiling is your ceiling because this game is so different than every other game because it is, or I should say as a hitter, right? As a hitter, the game is is based around failure, not success. And that is just not a concept that our brain as human beings can handle. So it's like whatever your mental game is, and you and you hit it on the head, it is very undervalued. So another piece of my content and my platform is to not only um, create fun, engaging, cool content and help players, but also to make sure that they understand the importance of this, right? Because I'm a firm believer if at a young age, if you can if you can be even somewhat serious about improving this mental skill, you're going to just separate yourself so much. Like the guys that can create some of these mental systems and these skill sets at an early age, they're going to have such a huge advantage over everyone they play for a really long time. Like it's just such a weapon. Um, and you, you just don't know what you don't know. And so to me, there is some um, importance in showing the younger, the younger audience of players of just how crucial this is. Um, 
because I mean, for instance, like I sell my training, my six tool athlete training, like I'm not trying to get rich off this thing, whatever. It's just out there. And I, I sell it because I think people value things they buy more than things they get for free. Right. And it's, you know, it's 90 bucks and I've had some pushback on like, it's too expensive, but I've done hitting lessons or whatever. And, and people don't blink. They don't bat an eye at a hundred dollar hitting lesson for an hour. Right. And this is something that's, you know, it's, it's five hours is 50 videos long. It's, it's this nonstop constant thing of, of, of value that to me is 10 X a hundred X more valuable than a single hitting lesson with me. But like people, un, people think they, they understand what the value of a hitting lesson is versus this. So there's a, there's a, a bit of education on that as well. Like, dude, I'm telling you guys like foundationally, if you can get this mental side, right. Like, you're just going, you're going to figure out the physical side. If you're a good player, you're going to end up figuring it out and understanding how to like move as a player and do this. Like you're going to figure it out just with experience, but this mental side, like guys go their whole careers and don't figure this out. I'm one of them, right? Like I figured out when it was too late and I don't want that to happen to you. And so that's like this give back that I really want to try to do is like preach to these guys. Like, dude, you gotta, you have to, you have to, have to, have to figure this out. If you want to like have the, the longest career you can have. I'm the same way. That, that's exactly how I felt. There's so many things that you look back that you wish you could change. And again, that's the, it's not just baseball. It's just anything in life. I think all of us can look back and go, I regret something. Sure. And I think the other part in baseball, and and I, I, I've, I've mentioned this to other people, and, and Richie, I know you've seen this. When people get – this is why it was just fascinating with me at the baseball. People talk about the physical uh, specimens, you know, quote-unquote for baseball, where there's all shapes and sizes, right? Mm-hmm. It's not saying where – you don't have to be the most athletic guy in base, but you have to have athletic talent. But I've seen guys that were so athletically gifted, so physically talented that never got close to the big leagues that were way more talented than guys that played in the big leagues and the guys that weren't as talented. And they'll just say, I worked really hard on perfecting what I could do. And I knew that I had to mentally be able to handle anything, take my lumps and be prepared for that. And, he, and they go, I wasn't a five-tool guy. Like, and I look back at the stories of, like, uh, David Eckstein was a guy growing up for me, mm-hmm. watching a guy that all he did was work, put in the work, put in the work, still wasn't the most talented guy, but you could tell it was almost like a way he willed himself. And then you're going to tell me he's a more physically talented player than a six-foot-five, 240 beast that hits a ball 500 feet. Yep. And you see guy that gets hot for – for two weeks and you think that's the greatest player in the world, but he can't sustain it. And yeah. why he can't sustain it? Because he mentally doesn't have the capability to make him be one of the best players. And last thing I'll say with that, and Richie, maybe you agree with this. When you are so physically talented that sometimes you're so talented that you get to the big leagues. And there are guys that do that mm-hmm. naturally. We know that. <clears throat> then there's the guys that don't have as much talent. They work so hard. The superstar players in major league baseball are the guys that are so physically talented but then they also are so mentally locked into what they're doing. Yep. And if you have that combination, you can see what can happen. So I don't know if you agree with that, but I've seen that like yeah. when I look at guys, when you go, well, you, there's a reason why even like some of the best players now are, you know, it's just Justin Verlander to me, people can say whatever they want, but there's a reason why he's still having so much success when he's gotten old, as he's gotten older, he's physically was so talented, but mentally, to be at that age and to, and to show up yeah. like he has, that shows you how much he's worked on that side of the game. No, hundred percent. I mean, that those are the superstars, right? The guys that have the physical tools and the mental side that mix together. Those are the stars, right? Those are the stars that last, not just 
for a short stretch of time, but for 20 years and they're the best players in the league, right? Those, these are the guys that, you know, are the hall of famers and the guys that, you know, you hang their jerseys up at stadiums. Like if you have both those skills, skill sets together, you dominate. It's funny though, because there are, there are a subset of those guys that are so physically talented. They dominate for a really, 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 really long time. And then they have a major setback or they have a, a level of sustained failure that they're never used to. And now they're not equipped with the skills. I'm like, whoa, hold on. Like, what do I do? Like, I don't, I've never, this is not before. And it kind of shatters the whole illusion of themselves because they were never this guy. Right. And so that's like, I have like these three types of, of, of confidence. And the first one is delusional confidence. And that's really what that is. It's like a guy that has never struggled in their whole life. They, they have this false sense of, invincibility and when they when they have that level of failure and it breaks them now they don't have any skill sets they've never had to face adversity and and figure out how to how to accomplish uh clawing the way back and so the guys that are the absolute best are the guys that are elite physically but then also have a mindset that is either a weapon for them and they are pretty dialed in or they are just so they're just so cavalier and just sort of carefree with their mindset that there no amount of failure can ever get to them. That's the frustrating part of those guys where you meet them and they just like, yeah, whatever. It's okay. You know, be like, I'm just going to go rake tomorrow. And just, you know, they're, they are, they don't, they don't care in the world. They're just, you know, it's, it's no big deal. I'm over here sweating bullets over every pitch. Right. And they're just like, ah, you know, it's fine, whatever. So like there's two sides to that, like elite mindset. Um, and not everyone's going to be the same, but yeah, to your point, yeah, those are the guys that are the absolute very best. This has been so great to hear, and thank you so much for coming on here. I just had a couple of quick, like, last fun questions for you, Richie. Um, yeah, go ahead. So I saw that you're actually an author, uh, which I thought was yeah. really, really cool. What, what kind of inspired your your love for sci-fi and writing? Yeah, so funny enough, it was journaling, right? So I was journaling after games. Uh, I was working with a mental skills coach, and it was like, I need to get all these thoughts out of my head. So I started journaling, and I was like, all right, well, I can only write about my feelings for so long. I need to start doing something a little more creative with my writing as a better outlet after games. And I'm a huge like sci-fi nerd. I love aliens and space and all kind of stuff. And I had this like nugget of an idea that I wanted to write. And so after games, I just started writing a page or two after every game on bus trips and whatever, um, without really any thought to it. I just was writing every day and didn't have an like, outline or a plan or anything. And I looked up at the end of the year and I had like 400 pages written. I was like, oh, damn, this is kind of sweet. And then fast, this is in 2017. And I had a really good buddy on the team who was a, a big reader. And so I'd have him just like read my pages every other day. I'm like, what do you think? He's like, Hey, it's pretty cool. Like keep going. So, uh, and then fast forward to 2020 again, when the world stopped or anything, when I was doing the, the, the streaming, I was like, all right, well you should probably finish it, dude. Like you're never going to have a time like this in your, in your life again, when you get to sit around and do nothing. So let's finish the book. Let's do it. So I edited it up, finished it. And it's called the eight of earth. It's on uh, Amazon. It's a sci-fi story about, um, the last eight humans in existence that are essentially raised on an alien civilization and sort of their backstory and the conspiracy around them. It's, I don't know. It's kind of like a, what, what kind of sci-fi book would I want to read? That's the book that I wrote. So it was an awesome experience. It was a cool, cool challenge. And it was something that also just wanted to prove that I could do it. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm big on like not being defined by my, my baseball life. I want to, I want it to be known. I can do other things, right? I have a lot of that like chip on my shoulder type of mentality. So it was really cool. I, I loved it. It did pretty well too. I sold like 2000 copies, which is wild. I put the over under like a hundred of like my mom buying 50 of them. <laughs> so, like, so it was cool, man. It got pretty good reception. I was, I was proud of it. 
I saw that on Amazon. And yeah, you're right. The reviews are almost entirely five stars. So yeah, that that's well, so yeah. There's some fudging going on. I had a lot of my friends write reviews. So, but yeah, they're oh. great. All <laughs> I had some of my some of my people like, hey, you know, give me good give me a good review. You know, they're good friends. That. Yeah, great good friends. friends. Good friends. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, so, when you were a first round draft pick, did you treat mm-hmm. yourself with any kind of like big purchase? Nah, man. I was so I was so conservative, dude. I bought a uh 2013 jeep grand cherokee that i still drive to this day um i loved it It it's great i still love it it's the best car ever um and then no i didn't do anything i live i paid myself a salary of like 20 grand a year and that's what i lived off of um and i just put the rest of it into like the most boring conservative investments ever and then um by the time i got to the big leagues and beyond and then learn a little bit about more about like wealth management stuff. I started doing some, some investing and everything. And now I'm, now I'm all in on, I got a whole we're startup world that I'm in on and, and angel investing and everything. But no, in the beginning I was like still eating ramen noodles and macaroni and cheese out of the craft cups. And, uh, that was it. I was so, I was terrified of losing my money. Yeah. Terrified. That's smart. Yeah. I mean, you hear some guys, it's just like they, they go out and buy like the nicest, like escalate and all this other stuff. But yeah, I mean, that's, Shout out you. That's that, that's really cool to hear. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of cool. Part of me wishes I would have been a little more a little more liberal with my with my expenditures, right? I wish I wish I would have been a little because there were some times where like okay, it, this is what I'll say. I was so frugal with it to the point of my own career. Like I wish I would have spent ten thousand dollars on a personal trainer in the off season, right? Like I just did stuff myself, you know. I, I those are the things I was so cheap and frugal that I didn't even invest money into my own career, which that to me was a mistake. And that was, that was a mindset of like, don't spend anything. Cause we're not making money. We got this chunk of change. We may never make a cent in our life again, protected at all costs. That was a very scarcity mindset. I wish I would have been like, dude, invest every penny you have into yourself. And then this way you're going to whatever. So that's the switch. I wish I would have made not, not necessarily go by Escalades, but more about like, dude, get a freaking chef to make you the best food you can possibly have and go find a trainer and go, go to the best hitting coach in the world and pay him whatever he needs to make you the best player ever. Like I wish I would have spent money on that. Oh, dang. Um, so in terms of when you got to the big leagues, what were you, what was your favorite and least favorite ballpark to hit in? Mm, favorite was Fenway. I had a homer at Fenway. That was still like my favorite memory ever hit one over the monster. It was so cool. And uh, the fans are just ruthless and they're right on top of you. And I have such a cool last name for Boston guys. Like, ah, Schaefer, you suck, buddy. <laughs> like, whatever. Like, so that was all. I just, I loved it. It was so great. Um, then least favorite was probably Detroit, just because it's like 7,000 feet to center field. And you're like, what are we doing? Let's move the fence. Why is this? Yeah. Why is this here? Why, they, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? What are we doing here? Like, this is, I don't know how Miggy hit so many home runs there because it's just, so so big had a homer at oriole park though i saw yeah yeah that was a that was actually one of the best ones because it was a little cracker jack box before they moved the the fence in i mean friends back i'm saying that place was absolutely so much fun to hit at um i love that that was great yeah that, Way different, that was a big topic on this podcast yeah, was the yeah. be moved back. i hate it though like who can no one no one likes pitchers in defense we want to see homers dude i think they should move all the fences in even more Move them all in, all the way around the league. Homers everywhere. If position players could have a say, every fence would be 300 or less to all 100%. parts. 100%. Yes, 100%. 
Yes, dude, absolutely. That. And switch it around. Give us four strikes and pitchers three balls. It's so hard to hit. I don't understand why the pitchers get the <laughs> advantage with that. It never made sense to me. It never made sense to me. Why do they get more balls than we get strikes? So dumb. I like this outside of the box thinking though. Yeah. There's uh one of my favorite videos you did was just like, you know, why have lineups just have like, you know, four at bats you can pick and choose. Oh, that was, that one triggered the baseball purist though. Oh boy. I'll tell you oh, what, yeah. you, you, you <laughs> not, not happy about there. that one. I had a guy call me an effing idiot. I, it was a, there was a, I, I triggered the base, but I still thought that was a fun thought experiment. Cause it really, it's like, and I don't think people understood the concept. The concept was you still have nine innings and 27 outs but everyone just has four capable at bats that the like the manager gets to pick and choose when they happen. And then once everyone gets four, uh, you don't have to all get four, but like if everyone does get four, then you earn a fifth at bat for everyone. If everyone gets those, then you get a sixth at bat and you get to pick and choose. So this way, you know, managers have to make a decision like, okay, it's the third inning and there's, you know, a guy on third base. Like, do we use trout or do we not use trout? Do we, do we try to save him? Do we not save him? I just think it makes like cool strategy. And I don't know if that was a fun talking point, but apparently God forbid that because I got some just absolutely insane comments on that thing. Oh my gosh. I know what you mean. I, d- I did one where it was like, if you had a starting nine, but it was just nine of the exact same player playing all the positions at the same time. Yeah. And everybody's probably thinking like, Oh, it's gotta be Otani. It was like, we well, you know Bryce Harper used to pitch and he's right. played everywhere. So I was just like, why not have him? He's a better hitter than Otani. And then people up in arms. So um, (laughs) we're not happy about that. Gotta love the, gotta love the social media commenters. You know, you gotta give them something to do all day. They're sitting around doing nothing. They gotta do something all day. (laughs) You hit the nail on the head. Um, All right. I have two last ones for you. So uh, Brian on this podcast, he told a story about, you know, playing third base at Tampa and Kevin cash hitting him vicious line drives with his fungus. Um, Can you attest to that? Does that, does that trigger any, you know, bad memories of, of, third base in Tampa. Yeah. So I remember that and I commented on it. Um, so Cashy wasn't the one that hit me ground balls. It was always Tom Foley and he was lefty and he would hit absolute scud missiles, but they were like lefty and in, in fading away all oh, the time. Yeah. And they'd always handcuff me. And like, I would take, I was like, I was like the little like puppy dog following Longo around. I was like, Hey man, can I take ground balls? With you? So I was always like taking ground balls with him. And he's just like, like he just doesn't miss anything and i'm over there just like playing playing goalie at hockey just like this is, why am i over here? this is dumb but yeah he would just hit missiles and he would laugh at you too he just laugh at you as he would handcuff you and then he would hit like he would also do this thing where he would like he would throw the ball up and then make it look like he was hitting it to the glove side and then hook it and throw hit and hit it to your backhand side and he would he would just he would just mess with you too as he was hitting missiles and i was just like this is uh i'm like i'm a rookie and i'm like just desperately trying to prove that i can play third base like in my practice ground balls like that's gonna make any difference and uh yeah he would just he would just he was just trolling me the whole time just absolutely messing with me but he's great i love tom he's the man that's that's so funny. I knew when when you commented on that, I was just like, I, I have to ask about that because that's that you know that probably makes you know the Tampa Bay defense. It is what it is. Like you know, in in practice, you're getting missiles hit at you, but yeah. you know, game speed, you're ready for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They they I mean they they take it seriously. Yeah, I mean they they are very like they'll they prepare you for sure. I mean, there's no doubt about that. There's a reason they're good defensively, and it's like I don't know what's like on other teams in the big leagues. I've only played for Tampa in the big leagues, but I mean, there's no you know, soft four hoppers that you're just kind of candy hops. You're just lobbing it over to first. I mean, they're hitting, they're hitting as live as G- ground balls as they, they can give you. Yeah. I love that. All right. I just had one last question for you. Uh, yeah. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh man. Um, On the spot. Yeah. The best piece of advice I ever received. Um, 
I don't know, man. It's probably uh, Longo told me one uh, about how like the next the next at bat could be the one that you know turns everything around for you. And so like in his mind, every single at bat was like, this is the at bat that you know it's going to click and I'm becoming MVP. This is the at bat that's like going to make my career. This is going to be like it was always this at bat's going to be, and then something that's the goal you want or whatever. He always had that mindset of like this next at bat's going to be the one or whatever. And so to me, um, I look back on that now as the best piece of advice I ever received. I don't think I absorbed it in the moment. I like, I think about it all the time. And so this, that's kind of what I talk about a good bit, but like this idea of like, we move forward, right? We move forward and we're always optimistic about the next opportunity and the next opportunity, and the next opportunity. And we're not like, we're not harping on the failures of the past. Those are just lessons to be applied to the next forward opportunity. So that's probably the best piece of advice that I ever received that I did not listen to. <laughs> so yeah. No. Dang. Well, that's all I had, Ryan, unless you had uh, any last, last things. No, I, I love it. Um, I think uh, you, you, you brought so much great uh, stories, con- or content thoughts, uh, love what you're doing with the content. Keep that going. I appreciate um, it. And just uh, appreciate you coming on to, to uh, flatter us. Um, no, thank you guys. This is awesome, man. I apologize if I rambled. I get very long winded. I just love to talk all day long. You're passionate. I, you're passionate. I, 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 sit, I sit in this room all day and I don't talk to other humans. And I'm like, okay, I got people to talk to. Let's just get all my words out at once. You know, I'm hitting here like editing TikTok videos. I talk to myself at a camera all day. I'm like, I can talk to people. Let's talk to them. You know? <laughs> Well, you got a lot I of stuff it. up there, a lot of stuff up there, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it, it, this is great. Um, yeah, thanks again. I'm sure, uh, we'll be talking, we'll be talking about more, uh, more things soon. I appreciate it guys. Thanks a lot. And before we get out of here, a special thank you to the band stick figure for allowing us to use today's intro and outro music. Playing on your radio, coming through your stereo.